anxiety and stress are the enemies of sleep. And as I say, we don't often have a sleep problem, you know, a fundamental breakdown in the mechanisms that drive sleep. It's this huge override of stress and anxiety. You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, Series 3, I'll be exploring sleep, the science of emotions and fast fashion. And I'll be asking my guests questions like, is baby brain a real thing? Is everything we've been told about skincare wrong? And why aren't we talking more about dementia? This is a podcast that asks, what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Are you tired all the time? Stressed you're not getting the fabled eight hours? Wondering whether to invest in a sleep tracker? Sleep scientist Russell Foster could not know more about sleep if he tried. The University of Oxford neuroscientist and the author of a new book, Lifetime, is a world-leading expert on circadian rhythms, also known as the body clock. And guess what? The whole eight hours a night is one of many myths. We discuss why better public knowledge about the circadian rhythm could change the way we all sleep, the difference between sleepiness and fatigue and the effect of COVID-19, why broken sleep is not a bad thing, but a natural occurrence, and why we are facing a public health crisis when it comes to looking after our night shift workers. We also discuss what works and what doesn't, such as sleep tracking apps, sleeping pills, CBD drops and more, and why trying to become an early bird when you're a night owl is so damn hard. Russell, thank you so much for coming on to Doing It Right. I'm really delighted to join you, Pandora. You write that there is a lot of sloppy thinking about sleep in the public domain. And I want to start by asking you, what is, there might be more than one, what is the biggest myth about sleep? That one size fits all. So mm. sort of the sergeant majors of, of sleep have been screaming, you must get eight hours of uninterrupted sleep. And of course, that's just nonsense. Sleep in adults, for example, can range in a, in a healthy range from six hours all the way up to 10 or 11 hours. And also that waking up in the middle of the night is probably the natural default state of human sleep, like all mammals. In fact, there's studies in the laboratory where individuals have been brought into the lab and given 12 hours of light and 12 hours of, of dark, and the sleep has become what's called polyphasic. You know, you, you, you slide into sleep, you have a few hours of sleep, you wake up, you go back to sleep again. And so many people feel that, that they're not getting the sleep that they're told to get and getting anxious about it uh, and rather embracing the, the sleep we get. So I think there's an awful lot of anxiety uh, because people have just taken the average value and made that a rule. Yes, I was fascinated to read that in Europe, in pre-industrial times, everyone would go to sleep for a few hours and then get up for a few hours and then have their second sleep. Why and when did it change into, as you say, this idea that you, if you don't have a solid night's sleep, you've, you've mucked it all up? <laughs> 
Well, Roger Eckert has done some wonderful research on this and, and look way back, you know, through the, the pre-industrial literature. And indeed, the last mention of first sleep and second sleep is in about 1922. And so with increasing industrialization and the need and the separation, in fact, from one's home environment, from one's work environment, and the need to commute backwards and forwards, the time available for sleep has just become increasingly compressed. And so instead of having, you know, an extended uh, sleep period, as we all did when when we were, let's say, agricultural workers, it's now being compressed to a seven or, if you're lucky, eight-hour window. And there's not time for the sleep to expand into those different uh, different states of waking up, going back to sleep again. And, and of course, because people are, think it should be a solid block of sleep, if people wake up thinking, oh my goodness, that's the end of sleep. I may as well start doing you know, my emails and, and drinking cups of coffee. And of course, if you stay relaxed and calm, you will go back to sleep. My mum always used to say that bed is not just for sleeping, it's for resting. And I always used to think that's a cop out. <laughs> is there any yeah. value just in the resting, not the sleeping? Yes, there is. And in fact, um, again, studies from the medieval literature suggest that people didn't go to bed and then fall asleep immediately. Uh, they had a two-hour sort of transition, relaxation, rest phase, where they sort of you know, got their, their mind in order uh, before they went to sleep. And of course, we don't have that luxury today. Most people, if they're, if they're sleeping, you know, will, will fall asleep immediately because they're chronically sleep deprived. About three years ago, I took part in some sort of sleep feature for the Sunday Times. I would talk about my sleep and sh the expert came back saying that I shouldn't be reading in bed, that bed was just for sleep and sex. And I, I remember reading that and think, feeling completely disgusted because I have read to get to sleep since I was, I mean, since I could read. What are your feelings on that? Oh, uh, this is again a classic example of, you know, being told what to do. Mm. And it really irritates me because sleep is immensely dynamic. And what, what the key thing for each of us is to, is to find what works for us. And you know, f first of all, are you getting enough sleep? And and that's really easy to decide. You know, if you're able to function optimally during the day at the level you want to perform, then chances are you're sleeping fine at night. Uh, the other indicators, of course, are is if you're dependent upon an alarm clock or somebody else to get you out of bed in the morning, you're probably not getting enough sleep. If you oversleep extensively on, on free days or holidays, uh, if you take a long time to wake up, the sort of sleep inertia, you're feeling groggy. If you're feeling sleepy and irritable uh, and, and, and really not functioning fully uh, during the day, if you crave a nap, uh, if you find you're doing overly impulsive and non-reflective things, if you're dependent upon caffeine-rich drinks to keep you awake during the day, and also if friends, family, colleagues comment upon your altered behaviour, you know, you're more irritable, you've got loss of empathy, you're doing stupid and, and disinhibited things. So these are the things that we can ask ourselves uh, what uh, whether we're getting enough sleep or not. And that was really 
the point of writing Lifetime, which is essentially providing the science behind our 24-hour body rhythms, including sleep, and then uh, deciding for ourselves what will work for us and our, our individual sleep needs. And, and really, it was also written as a bit of a sort of a... Uh, a, a response to this endless stream of you must do this and you must do that, which is completely wrong in my view. These are guidelines, yes, and you can make generalizations, but they won't apply to everybody. The adage, you know, one size, one shoe size does not fit all is absolutely brilliantly applies to sleep as well. And the central thing in Lifetime is the body clock, also known as the circadian rhythm and of course you are a professor of circadian neuroscience i must confess i did not know much about the circadian rhythm and i suspect i'm not alone because you you write that it is it's kind of chronically ignored in our cultural dialogue around sleep and that it's really dangerous almost politically and culturally how much it's ignored can you talk a little bit about why it's so important and why you think it is so neglected in public discourse Yes, I, I think that perhaps because we sit on a planet that revolves once every 24 hours and produces a light dark cycle, and we're so used to that, we don't really appreciate how brilliantly our body adapts to that changing world. If you think about it, for our biology to work, what we need is the, is the, right, the correct materials delivered to the correct tissues and organs at the right concentration at the correct time of day. And what the circadian system does is to, to timestamp everything. It provides an exquisite time structure to optimize our biology. And, and we kind of ignore that. And, and just to illustrate the importance of, of this, so for example, some diseases, some, some conditions, uh, due to uh, circadian-driven changes in our biology, th there's a 50% increase in having a stroke and indeed a heart attack between 6 a.m. and 12 noon. So that is one of the most dangerous times of the day. Interestingly, that transition from, from sleep into wake. Now, knowing that there is that window of, of death, then when should we be taking our, our blood pressure medications, our, our antihypertensives, that, that are designed to reduce the chances of a stroke? Now, most GPs will not advise their patients to take them at a particular time. If they know anything at all, they'll say, well, take them first thing, because that's the most dangerous time uh, when a stroke is likely to occur. But in fact, the data show that if you take your antihypertensives uh, before you go to sleep, rather than first thing in the morning, over a 10-year period, you can halve your chances of having a stroke. Gosh. Now, that's really important mm. information, and it isn't out there. Mm. We also know that uh, anti-cancer treatments can have different effects at different times. Some really famous studies from the United States in uh, women with ovarian cancer had the same drugs uh, but delivered at different times. And uh, over a five-year period, survival in one group was 45%. And for the other group, taking the drugs at a different time, it was 10%. So same drug, same concentration, different time, hugely different effects. And just one more illustration, a vaccination, a, a really interesting study 
on the flu vaccine in 70-year-olds showed that uh, compared uh, individuals taking being vaccinated uh, first thing in the morning or in the late afternoon. Those that had vaccination in the morning had a threefold greater antibody response than those in the in the late afternoon. And, and this is really important stuff and it's not embedded either in our thinking or indeed our clinical practice, by and large. That is completely fascinating. So when you say it's not embedded in clinical practice, is it that it's not being taught in medical schools or just that the trials are still in in early phases? What is it, do you think, that is, is preventing this knowledge being more widely spread? I think there's a couple of things. Uh, certainly it's not really taught in our medical schools. Circadian rhythms is sort of a footnote at best. And so what we've done in Oxford is develop sort of the first fully online masters and diploma in sleep medicine, which also includes circadian rhythms, so that healthcare professionals can compensate for the fact that they haven't had this knowledge. The other problem, and I've talked about this extensively with my, my clinical colleagues, is that their feeling is that they're running as fast as they possibly can to stay where they are, you know, the classic Red Queen problem. And if we then impose a whole new additional dimension on top of medicine, which is time, and taking particular drugs at a particular time, and, and, and parenthetically, there are over 100 drugs with a time of day effect. It's just sort of the straw that breaks the, the, the camel's back. It's just more than they can actually deal with at the moment because they're so pressurized and so stressed. And so I'm deeply sympathetic to you know my clinical colleagues because they're, they're having one hell of an awful time. Uh, and trying to then sort of say, wow, yes, but this must be done at a particular time. It's just too much. It's just a bit too overwhelming. Almost everyone I know is either a night owl or an early bird. Are we born like this? And can you turn yourself into another? Because I've been trying to turn myself into an early bird so that 7am does not feel like a little death every morning for as long <laughs> as I can remember. And still, it will just never come naturally to me to go to bed early and get up early. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, let's let's think about the the sort of the basis of one's chronotype, whether you're a morning person, an intermediate person, or, or, or an evening person. So there are a number of factors. First of all, there's genetics. We now know that changes in some of the key clock genes are linked to either morningness or eveningness. So if you like, by their contribution to our genes, our parents are still telling us what time to get up and go to bed. So, so part of it is genetic. Part of it is how old we are. So from the age of about 10, we want to go to bed a bit later and later and later. And this peaks in the late uh, teens, early 20s. And then as we uh, age, uh, this we start to become very slowly a more morning type. And so by the time we're um, in our late 50s, early 60s, we're getting up and going to bed at about the time we got up and went to bed at the age of 10 or so. And that profile almost exactly uh, follows the changing levels of uh, the sex hormones, testosterone and estrogen. So sharp rise during puberty, really rapid getting later, and then the decline in these hormones as we, as we go into old age. So there's a hormonal component uh, almost certainly related to the circulating levels of testosterone and estrogen. The third element, which is the one that's often missed, is when we see light. 
Now, light is incredibly important for setting the body clock, the internal clock, to the external world. Classic mismatch would be jet lag. And we eventually get over jet lag primarily by exposing ourselves to the light-dark cycle in the new time zone, and that realigns the clock to the local, the local time. Now, light has different effects at different times. So dusk light delays the clock, so dusk delays. Morning light advances the clock, makes us want to get up earlier and go to bed earlier. Now, we did a study a few years ago on university students around the world, in Australia, New Zealand, uh, Germany, Holland, uh, uh, and in Oxford, and showed that those with the latest chronotype, the, the, the owls, if you like, were getting uh, lots of evening light, dusk light, which was delaying the clock, making them get up later and go to bed later, and they were missing the morning light, which would counteract that, you know, making them get up earlier and go to bed earlier. When we were all agricultural workers, we were getting symmetrical exposure to both dawn and dusk, and so we were being nudged backwards and forwards and staying on cue. But if we get lots and lots of dusk light, we're going to get up later and go to bed later. So, Pandora, <laughs> what you need to do is set your alarm clock uh, in the morning at a brutal time, you know, six, seven o'clock in the morning. Uh, get outside, get lots of bright natural light. And of course, if it's wintertime, sit in front of a light box and that will advance your clock. And uh, if you keep on doing that, uh, it, it'll, it'll mean that you'll be much more able to get up earlier and then you'll want to go to bed earlier. So we do have a little bit of control over our chronotype, but, but it is largely dictated by our genetics and our age. I was interested earlier when you were talking about the sex hormones and how it affects kind of what time you want to go to sleep is that there is a there is a hormonal reason for why teenagers want to stay up so late and thus sleep much later isn't there yeah, I mean, there is that 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 sort of delayed um, sleep. The the problem that teenagers also face is is a, is a couple of things. The I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that in some individuals there is an addiction to social media, uh, and, mm. and in fact, many teachers teenagers will know that staying up half the night doing social media is bad for you, but. In a sense, it's, it causes so much anxiety by not being connected and not knowing what's going on within your particular social group. So, so there's a delayed sleep because of, of, of these, these other things or gaming or, or whatever, so the use of devices. Uh, there's another issue that, that teenagers face, and this is something we've become aware of during the studies is that uh, you, they have shortened sleep because they're going to sleep late. So the alarm clock is driving them out of bed. And they're struggling through the school day. And, and indeed, you know, you speak to teachers and some will say, yes, you know, my students are actually falling asleep at their desks, literally falling asleep. So these cr chronically tired young people are then getting home after school and then having not just a brief nap, but a long sleep of two or three hours on some occasions. And what that does is push back the sleep pressure, which means it's more difficult to get to sleep that night. And so some teenagers are falling into the sort of the trap of shorter nighttime sleeps and longer daytime naps close to bedtime, which is which is actually really disrupting their, their whole sleep-wake cycle. So it's best not to nap, certainly not have long naps um, late in the day, because that will that will certainly disrupt your ability to get to sleep that night. What do you think of the argument that teenagers studying in sixth form should be allowed to start school later. So instead of having, I don't know, 8.45 to 3.45, they would do 
10.30 to 6. Do you think that do you think that would be helpful or do you think it would just kind of imbalance their sleep as they head towards adulthood even more? I think this is a really important question and it's something that's hotly debated at the moment. If we look at what's going on in the States, the school start time in the States can be as early as 7 o'clock in the morning or 7.30 in the morning. So a really early um, start time to the schools. And researchers like Mary Kaskaden in the States at Brown University have looked at the effect of a delayed start time. So not starting before 8.30 in the morning. And that reduced self-harm. It reduced um, uh, elements of stress. It improved grades and it reduced truantism. Now, of course, in the UK, we don't start schools until uh, 10 to 9 or 9 o'clock. So whether it would be a good idea to go even later, let's say 10 o'clock in the UK, I think needs to be seriously considered. And what I would recommend trying first is education. So we, a few years ago, worked with a number of schools and the teachers in those schools to develop an education package, which the teachers then taught to their students. And in those uh, young people who were showing poor sleep, insomnia, the education actually improved their sleep. And so they were showing a healthier sleep pattern, being less tired after simply being told about the importance of sleep, how to prioritize their sleep, why sleep needs to be sort of taken seriously and and all the other things. So I think what I would go for first in the UK would be to embed sleep education as part of the national curriculum so that young people are armed with this knowledge and hopefully will take this knowledge with them uh, as they grow older. We live in sleep-obsessed times and the kind of societal refrain is that we are, you know, tireder than ever before. But a couple of years ago, the directors of the Time Use Research Centre at UCL found that we actually sleep more now than we did 50 years ago. And they had no explanation for why we felt tireder than ever before, except that life is more fragmentary, we have less routine, and that perhaps the quality of sleep is spoiled. What do you think? I think that's, again, a really important issue. And I just read an article just yesterday looking that that, that millennials um, are sleeping on average 20, 22 minutes more than Generation X, which, if I remember, as sort of the the people in their their 50s and and 60s. So it does seem that there are some attitudes changes of, of defense of sleep. But this doesn't, and so, so millennials are, are trying to get better sleep, they're defending their sleep more appropriately. Um, but that doesn't expect, explain why there's this comment that we're feel, feeling tireder. And I think it raises, for me, a really important point, and that we need to distinguish between sleepiness, which is cured by sleep, and fatigue. And fatigue is this this overwhelming sense of tiredness, this sort of combined with lethargy, lack of energy. And of course, fatigue uh, is often the result of um, excessive stress or some underlying uh, illness. And I think that what we're facing in our massively pressurized society at the moment is high levels of fatigue which are not cured by the availability of sleep. And so I think we need to 
be very careful what we mean by sleepiness. Sleepiness, as I say, is cured by sleep, uh, whereas fatigue is not. And, and the classic example, of course, is the fatigue that many of us experienced during COVID-19. We were actually sleeping longer, but we still felt really ropey. And that's a classic example of fatigue. And so distinguishing between the two, I think, is going to be really important going forward. And presumably that's impacted by getting outside less. I mean, that was obviously a huge thing in COVID, only going for a walk every day. But I also wondered if as work becomes more sort of siloed, so lots of people don't go into an office, you know, I work from home and sometimes I will notice that I haven't left the house that day. And if I have, I've left the house for sort of five, 10 minutes. I think that's incredibly important because what many people did, of course, is uh, convert their bedrooms, not only uh, you know, sleeping spaces, but that's where they set up their offices. And so there was never that, that separation between that, that, that sort of sleeping space where you wind down, where you relax, where you sleep, and your workspace. So you were constantly sort of uh, thinking about, oh, should I just sort of check that email? And if you wake up in, you know, in the middle of the night, then, and, and not being aware of the fact that you will get back to sleep perfectly well, you'll think, oh, I might as well sort of just start checking my emails. And so this, this, this failure to separate the relaxation and sleeping space from the workspace, I think, has been really very difficult. And of course, it, you know, absolutely classic in, in people who live in London, where, where property is at a premium and, and rooms are very scarce. So what do you do? And of course, the easiest thing was to, to set up an office in your bedroom. 31% of the population now report that they suffer from insomnia. Obviously, COVID recently has been a huge factor, but this was a problem before. And I imagine there's some time with what we've just discussed. But why do you think that is? It's, it's again, a really important issue. And I think my response would be that most people don't have a sleep problem. What they have is a stress and an anxiety problem. And what's happening is that anxiety and stress are preventing people to get getting to sleep uh, in the first place. If they wake, they're, they're waking up and they immediately start getting anxious, which means they're not going to get back to sleep. And so I think it's the immense pressures that many people uh, are, are encountering, not least the appalling financial um, uh, circumstances that many people now find themselves in. All of this anxiety, all of this stress is going to disrupt sleep. And, and you know, I, I've, I've argued that anxiety and stress are the enemies of sleep. Uh, and as I say, we don't often have a sleep problem, you know, a fundamental breakdown in the mechanisms that drive sleep. It's this huge override uh, of stress and anxiety. And it's worth we're sort of making the analogy, I think. You know, stress gets a bad rap, but of course, I think I think, think of stress as a bit like the first gear, the first gear of a car. So you know, it gives you that fantastic, great acceleration, so it can get you out of trouble. You know, the whole fight or flight response. But then, for many of us, we're not turning off that acute activation of the stress axis. We're keeping it going all the time to deal with the work situation or the home situation, or or worry about 
our financial circumstances. And if you keep a car in first gear, you'll destroy the engine. And that's, I think, really what's the analogy is, is what's happening with us. Uh, we've got to find ways of stepping back, finding ways to relax and to reduce those levels of anxiety. And I have to say, in the early days, I was really quite sneery about things like mindfulness. I sort of had it in the box of crystal, crystal waving and all the rest of it. And that appalling arrogance. But now I've understood more what value you can get from from winding down and and the approaches of mindfulness i think these are the sorts of things that people um should uh, think about um, uh, 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 sort of trying to reduce their levels of anxiety and therefore improving their levels of sleep sleep medication is a hugely contested subject do you believe as some sleep specialists do that what a sleeping pill gives is junk sleep or do you have a more palatable view of them? I think sedatives, which is like sleeping tablets or indeed alcohol, what they do is they um, turn off those uh, neurotransmitters in the brain that give us our levels of alertness and our consciousness. And uh, what that is, is sedation but it is not a biological mimic for sleep. And we know that certain sedatives, uh, and certainly alcohol, will reduce some of the important things going on within the brain whilst we sleep. So memory formation, for example, and, and perhaps even more important than that is our ability to come up with uh, creative solutions to complex problems. That's all inhibited to a greater or lesser extent by current sleeping tablets and, uh, and sedatives. So. I, I, the, the recommendation from, from, I think, clinicians would be short-term use of some sort of sedative, or obviously not alcohol, uh, can be useful as a short-term corrective. But depending, you know, but, depend, but dependency on these drugs to get us off to sleep every night is a really bad thing. It's also a problem particularly in the, in the aging community, where sleep, of course, is reported to be very poor. And the default is to take um, nighttime sleeping tablets. But that can actually raise some real problems. It means that people will be groggy at night. So if they have to get up uh, and go for a pee, for example, there's a greater likelihood of falling. And it can also increase daytime sleepiness. So bottom line is short-term use, fine. Long-term use should be avoided at all costs. Do you think sleep trackers help or hinder? You tell one <laughs> funny story about a man waking up in the middle of the night to check his sleep on his sleep tracker, which slightly defeats yeah. the purpose. But oh, I've goodness, never yes. bought one, even when I've had really terrible bouts of insomnia, because I just feel like they would make me more anxious. Yeah, they they, they are... Where to, where to start? Um, I, I think, so if we, if we strip back and we say, okay, what's their point? Well, well actually... Uh, they can be useful in the same way that if you want to lose weight, you weigh yourself in the morning um, and you notice a, a drop in weight and that reinforces your altered eating behavior. Your altered eating behavior feeds back and reduces your weight. So they can have a positive effect. And what a sleep tracker could be useful for is looking at when you went to bed, uh, how many times you woke up at night, when you got up, so your sleep duration and your sleep sort of consolidation. But when they start to try and tell you that you had a really good sleep or that uh, you had a poor night's sleep based upon the levels of REM sleep and non-REM sleep, it's kind of nonsense. 
when you look at the validation of many of these devices, it's pretty weak. And it's basically like eight university students in California uh, where they've tested the, the device out. Now, I'm being, I'm being overly, uh, sometimes being a, a bit overly critical because some people are genuinely trying to work in this space and, and make a difference, but we're not there yet. And uh, none of the Sleep federations endorse any of the available devices at the moment, and none have FDA uh, approval. So uh, I think you can you can try them, take take the results with a pinch of salt. Don't take it too seriously, as 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 you're saying. I mean, I really did come across a chap who who said he was so anxious that he wasn't getting enough slow wave sleep. He was setting the alarm clock to wake him up to check how much slow wave sleep uh, he, he'd had. One of the early points you make in the book is that employers assume that their night shift workers will adapt to working at night. Is it fundamentally dangerous for people to work nights? Are some people able to adapt and others not? So 97% of night shift workers do not adapt to the night shift. And the assumption has been that they do. I remember a conversation several years ago now with the chairman of the Confederation of British Industry who said, look, we can, we can cure the ills of British industry. We won't have to have massive commutes, you know, the great, the great um, sort of gridlock on the railway and the road systems. We won't have to have lots of buildings, you know, more buildings in London if we run our industries on a 24-7 basis. Um, and, of course, he was, you know, well, well-intentioned individual, but no idea of the biological consequences of what he was proposing. And we go back to my favourite topic, which is light. We said that light is incredibly important in setting the body clock. And what happens, of course, is that the night shift worker is under relatively dim light during the factory or the office at night. Then on the drive home, we'll experience bright natural light or sometimes a bit later in the day. And the clock will always defer to the brighter light signal as being daytime. And so the body clock of most night shift workers is aligned to the 24-hour day in exactly the same way as day shift workers. So what's going on? It means that what night shift workers have to do is override this entire biology saying you should be asleep uh, and they, they have to work. And of course, part of the way you can get over that incredible sleep drive is to activate the stress axis. And of course, it's chronic activation of the stress axis that leads to all the health problems. So short-term night shift work has been associated with uh, fluctuations in mood. One really interesting study looked at the, the, the way that the tired brain gives attention to things. So the tired brain will remember negative experiences, but forget positive ones. So the whole world view of a tired person, as in a night shift worker, will be negative. Irritability, anxiety, loss of empathy, frustration, risk-taking, impulsivity, decreased cognition, performance, the divorce rate in night shift workers in some sectors is six times higher than the day shift. That's the, I'm sorry, that's the short-term stuff. The longer-term stuff is uh, increased cardiovascular disease, altered sort of uh, immunity, so lower immunity, increased infections, high rates of cancer. In fact, 
very interestingly, the World Health Organization has said that uh, night shift work is a probable carcinogen because of the correlations between night shift work and high rates of breast cancer, colorectal cancer, and indeed prostate cancer. And big metabolic abnormalities, obesity and diabetes too, are real problems uh, on, the, on the night shift. Okay, so we have all these problems. What can we do about it? So we're not going to get rid of those problems, but I do think we can, on the basis of the knowledge that we have now, mitigate some of those problems. And I think there's a duty of care by employers to their employees in this sector. So, for example, uh, after extended periods of, of night shift, you are much more likely to fall asleep on the drive home. A study uh, on junior doctors a few years ago showed that 57% of junior doctors had either had a crash or a near miss driving home after the night shift. So what an employer could do is provide apps that would detect that you're falling asleep at the wheel, that can detect head nod or eye roll, and just produce a, an audible sound to wake you up on that drive home. So you're not going to plow into the vehicle in, in, in front of you or the central reservation. Um, we've talked about the poor physical and mental health, and I should say that depression and, and severe mental illness is not, uncom not uncommon in the night shift. So knowing that there are these health problems, we should be having higher frequency health checks of our night shift workers to try and find these problems before they become chronic. Another area, you know, obesity, diabetes too, metabolic abnormalities. What nutrition do we make available to night shift workers? Well, it's just about as bad as it possibly could be, which is high fat, high sugar. What we need to be providing is easy to digest, protein-rich snacks um, to our night shift workers. We're not doing that in any sector. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm not naive enough to say we shouldn't do night shift work. It's, you know, that particular genie's out of its bottle. Uh, but what we can do now on the basis of the science that we know is mitigate some of the side effects. This episode of Doing It Right is sponsored by Oto and their cult sleep drops. I first tried sleep drops last year when they were recommended to me by a friend and I've never looked back. I've had sleep issues for the last five years or so and I would regularly experience all-night bouts of insomnia. I made some lifestyle changes, no mobile phones in bed people, which helped immeasurably but I still felt anxiety about going to sleep until I met Sleep Drops. Oto believe that products should be evidence-based and their award-winning Sleep Drops are bestsellers for a reason. Created to help you wind down, relax and better prepare for a peaceful night's sleep, they're blended with 50 milligrams of pure CBD, which is the research recommended amount proven to have an impact on your sleep. One of the most common misconceptions about CBD is that it makes you drowsy when actually it optimizes your natural sleep-wake cycle. It's not a sedative, it's a healthy, sustainable and natural alternative to a sleeping pill, helping you to feel focused and productive during your day. If you like the sound of them, visit otocbd.com forward slash Pandora. That's otocbd.com forward slash Pandora to shop with 20% off using the code PANDORA20. The link is also in the show notes. What about CBD oil? Yeah, cannabinoid is 
is is turning out to be really interesting. And when I wrote Lifetime, uh, the data was just emerging that it could be a useful way to increase relaxation and therefore promote sleep. Since publishing Lifetime, there have been some more studies, and I think people are now getting quite excited that cannabinoid oils might be a useful and uh, potentially um, harmless way of reducing anxiety and promoting sleep. Also, there is a value, isn't there, in something being a placebo? Oh, yes, um, absolutely. And so um, a very interesting study which looked at uh, light and depression, fascinating, turned, uh, turned out a few years ago. And so what they, what they compared with uh, was a, a placebo and Prozac and light. Now, just after eight weeks, Prozac was just significantly different from placebo. So it took eight weeks to define a difference between Prozac and, and placebo in reducing levels of depression. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, light, and this was 30 minutes of 10,000 lux in the morning, uh, after two weeks was significantly different from placebo. And by eight weeks, it was massively different from Prozac, uh, suggesting that light, acute exposure to light, can have a, a direct effect on improving uh, depression, more so than taking Prozac, which I think is extraordinary. The mechanisms we don't understand, but one thing that's so fascinating is that when they combined Prozac and light, the effects were additive, suggesting that the mechanisms whereby Prozac re was reducing depression were different from the mechanisms whereby light was reducing uh, depression. It's a really fascinating area, uh, and it may well be what the light was doing was consolidating the circadian system and 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 reducing sort of that internal desynchrony, um, where which can promote uh, depressive episodes. So, getting an SAD box is it an SAD box or a sad box? <laughs> can a sad sad box or, or light box? Yeah, can be really helpful. Yeah, I, I mean. You need them in the winter because there's not light first thing in the morning. But actually, sitting by a window, uh, you can probably get 3,000 lux, which is what many of these light boxes produce, and ideally go outside. I think it was a lovely study a few years ago showing that owners of dogs had better sleep-wake cycles and lower levels of depression. And of mm -hmm. course, if you're a dog owner, you know you've got to get out and walk the dog first thing in the morning. And of course, the consequence of that will be exposure to light. Absolutely, and that, that routine as well. Yeah. But your quick tips for to foster a good night's sleep. In terms of getting a good night of sleep, um, there are a number of things we can do. And there's there's loads of stuff in the book, but just sort of a, a few highlights. And we could divide it up, you know, during the day, before bed, the bedroom itself and in bed. And just a few things. During the day, we've talked about the importance of getting morning light. If you're going to take a nap during the day, make sure it's not longer than 20 minutes. And then I think at the end of the day, make time to step back from stressful situations. We've talked about this, this sort of division of work and relaxation space. And, and indeed, um, consider relaxation techniques immediately after work. I mean, go to the gym, uh, go to a yoga class, do, do, do meditation, whatever works for you. Before a bed, reduce the levels of light by approximately 30 minutes. This is important because the brighter the light, the greater the levels of alertness, and that will um, mean it will take you a longer to get to, to, to sleep. We've talked about ideally avoiding uh, sedatives. Don't use alcohol or antihistamines. Many people self-administer these sort of drowsy antihistamines really bad idea. And again, you know, it's, it's, wind, it's winding down at the end of the day. The problem is that for so many couples, 
the only time to actually discuss stuff is just before you go to bed. Yes. Um, and so my, my <laughs> advice is avoid stressful topics. So, you know, in, in, in our house, the discussion of family finances never takes place in that sort of window before uh, for sleep. So the bedroom itself shouldn't be too warm. Uh, again, for the reasons we've discussed, you know, you need to have lose that slight core body temperature. Keep it quiet. You know, white noise may be useful if you're living in a flat with um, lots of other people. Uh, keep it dark, um, ideally. Separate where you can, you know, computers, tablets, and all the rest of it. And if you have to have them in your bedroom, make sure they're not easy to turn on. Turn them off. Maybe even put them on a time clock. Don't clock watch. Many people have an illuminated clock by the bed. And if they wake up at night, they'll they'll see the dial and then think, oh my God, I've only got two hours before the alarm goes off. That's that information is irrelevant. It's it's when the alarm goes off that's important, not how long you've got before the alarm goes off. Actually invest in a good mattress and pillows. I think as Brits, there's sort of there's a something something slightly Calvinistic about spending a lot of money on a mattress or pillows. You know, it's something that, that's a bit of an indulgence. But after all, a third of our lives are spent in bed. We should luxuriate under a wonderful duvet and beautiful pillows. Keep bedside lights low because they will increase alertness. Some people use relaxing oils and, and things like lavender. Now, we, we, we touched on placebo. The scientific evidence that these actually make a big difference um, mechanistically is, is, is not there. But people do use them. And people also report that if they're going away to stay a night in a hotel, they might take the scent of their, their, their wife or the aftershave of, their, of, their, of their, their, their partner to sort of define the sleeping space um, and, and trying to make it uh, more like home. If your partner snores, now this is something that many people ask. Um, well, of course, earplugs is one alternative. But if, you, if they don't work for you, then find an alternative sleeping space. People just say, no, I can't do that because it's the, the beginning of the, the end of, 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 a, of a relationship. Of course it isn't. The key thing is, above all, define what works best for you and then stick to your routine. Defend one's sleep. Take it seriously. Defend one's sleep and take it seriously. I think that's a lovely note to end on. Russell, thank you so much. You have been completely fascinating. Um, and I'm so grateful that you made the time to come on. Thank you. Thank you, Pandora. I've, I've really enjoyed it. This episode of Doing It Right was hosted and exec produced by Pandora Sykes. Production is by Joel Grove. Subscribe now on any major pod platform to get the episodes as soon as they land.